Think about an object that makes you uncomfortable. Now ask yourself why you tend to side-eye that particular thing. With all the stuff you possess, is there one thing that just flat out gives you the creeps? For me, I hate dolls. I despise them. They creep me out and make me profoundly uncomfortable. But why? I honestly can't say for sure. Something about their beady, soulless eyes, which gaze lifelessly back at me. But other than that, I I don't really know. Well, welcome to Refrangible. I'm your host, Jennifer Fields. I'm Jonah Chester. And today, Jonah, we're talking about objects that may send a shiver down your spine. Some of the objects folks are most uncomfortable around tend to revolve around common things, the unknown and death. On some level, it makes sense that objects that remind us of our own mortality make us uncomfortable, especially when we don't really know what they are or how they were used. But as we hope to illustrate in this episode, that doesn't necessarily need to be the case. There can be beauty in death and all of the cultural customs that surround it. In fact, you could argue we used to view all death rites through that lens, but as society has quote-unquote modernized, we've lost some of that. Perhaps the best way to consider our cultural relationship with death isn't through a 21st century lens. Maybe if we literally shrink things down to a smaller scale, they'll be easier to examine. Okay, so this is a little coffin. It's made out of wood probably about four and a half inches long and maybe an inch and a half, two inches wide and probably about the same depth. And it's a very basic flat bottom but rounded top coffin. And inside of this little wooden coffin are three little wooden people. They're very primitive shaped people. You know, they don't even have arms or legs, but you can tell it's supposed to be a person. Um, And then in each one of them, they have names scratched in them. There's two that are painted with blue like very dark, almost black, blue paint. And those two are, one of them has the word Felix, or the name Felix scratched in it, and the other one has the name Hank scratched in it. And then there's one that is painted like a yellowish-orange color, and that has the name Eva. There is what appears to be words or a name on the front of the coffin with what looks like a little cross. And the front, I don't know what the first word is. The second word, it's definitely, I can make out many of the letters, but I'm not sure what the second letter is. It's F and either an R or a Y, I-E-D-E-N. So I always assumed it was a name. It's this strange little coffin that existed on a shelf full of other tchotchkes that my dad had. 
I remember being piled into the car to drive to some small town in Wisconsin or Minnesota, um, sometimes maybe even Michigan. And the, his thing was he, he collected stuff. Um, a lot of the time it was little metal soldiers and old toys, um, old tools, things like that. And I assume that this is how that came into his collection of things. I remember playing with it. In fact, I think I am the reason that it's missing the nail on the top that used to hold, because as a kid, it would spin open. The top didn't come totally off. Um, and I feel like I have a memory of of losing the nail and being really worried that my dad was going to be upset. I'm not sure I ever told him. <laughs> so um, I think I'm the reason why it doesn't work like it used to. But yeah, I, I definitely romanticized stories about this thing. That's for sure. But they weren't happy. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like for being a little kid, they weren't happy stories. I wasn't thinking that like someone did this out of happiness more that it was it was a way to grieve lost loved ones that they maybe couldn't grieve at the time because I, I could never figure out why somebody would do this I remember not thinking that this thing was creepy as a kid um, it actually wasn't until later as an adult that I sort of well my dad passed um, and there was a while there where I was, I was worried that I had maybe brought like bad luck onto myself because I was keeping it in my house. <laughs> uh, but I don't think that's true. I don't get a lot of negative feelings towards it. Sometimes I do feel like, if anything, I, I get like sad feelings about it. My name is Sarah Carter, and I am the director of the Center for Design and Material Culture, and I'm also an associate professor in the Design Studies Department in the School of Human Ecology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. One of the things that set me on the whole path of being a historian was seeing like a doll wearing funeral clothes when I was very young. Not knowing what that was inspired my senior thesis, which is about doll funerals, that then like set up, I mean, you know what I mean? So like understanding like the unknown can like lead you down a path where you're asking cultural questions. So Sarah, talk to me about your initial response to these objects. Curiosity, wonder, you know, wonder in both sense of the words, like, huh, you know, what is, what is going on here? But also um, like really wanting to ask a lot of questions about where did they come from? How did they come to us? How did they come to you? as um, someone investigating them. They also make me think about a lot of research that I've done into history of doll play, and in particular, history of doll funeral play. And wondering, do these things somehow fit into that history? Or are they part of, you know, another set of contexts or histories or stories? Even though I know it existed, I really haven't, like, processed it intellectually the ideal of doll funerals and death becoming 
something that you, for lack of a better way to, to, to process it, something to be played with. When I was quite young, I saw a doll in what I understood to be morning dress in a small museum um, up in Vermont, way up in you know the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont, I'm pretty sure in St. Johnsbury. And it struck me as something like very, very curious, right? Like something that, as you say, is kind of hard to make sense of with, you know, then 20th and now 21st century conceptions of both childhood as a concept and the way we think about death, things that didn't really seem to match. And that actually set me on a whole research path um, when I was a junior in college thinking about what I was going to write my senior thesis on, you know, my first, you know, big chance to do my own intellectual work. I had an awesome advisor who basically asked me to think about like, what are some of the questions that you're interested in? And the question that I kept coming back to was like, what is this thing? You know, how do I make sense of an object like this? And so I actually ended up jumping in and writing my senior thesis on this topic and thinking about histories of children and toys and play and how those ideas connected to ideas about sickness and death. Because as I discovered in this research, it was very common for children to pretend that their dolls were sick or dying in the late 19th century. And we know that through surviving objects, but we also know that through very early psychological studies of children a quite famous 1897 study of dolls by G. Stanley Hall, who's a rather complicated person that we could have a whole other set of conversations about. You know, he interviewed or, you know, had folks interview almost a thousand children and a large percentage of them played funeral with their dolls, right? What? Yeah, pretended their dolls were sick, dead and dying. And that was a moment where I was like, okay, so this is happening. What's going on here? And as I kept digging, um, as college senior Sarah kept digging into this, as I was just learning to be a historian then, finding all kinds of, you know, poetry about the dead doll or children's stories about sick dolls. Um, Yeah. And then objects connected to this history. And what became really fascinating to me was that there was a really interesting material story. You know, oftentimes pretending your doll was sick or dead was a strategy to keep playing with the doll that maybe had been broken or maybe that, you know, wasn't quite as perfect as it was when you first received it, or perhaps it was a hand-me-down toy. So for example, like a wax doll and and the the sicknesses that dolls would get would be dependent on their materials, which I still find, um, so like, you know, creative and, um, just kind of fascinating. So, you know, wax dolls, if their wax melted or their faces became pot-marked, would be viewed as potentially having smallpox or measles or having what? survived. <laughs> yes. Wait, or, what's the age range of these kids? Like, what uh, are we talking about? Six, seven, eight, nine, ten-year-olds. Okay. Yeah. So, or let's say a, a paper doll, like a French paper doll, which, you know, made through sort of like laminated layers of paper. Perhaps if it got wet and the paper started peeling, children would pretend the doll had leprosy, right? <laughs> and so, like... <sighs> And this is what's recorded in, um, you know, a study of dolls and other places like asking children about their imaginative play connected to these material things. And so that seems in some ways kind of awful. But at the same time, it's a way to think about potentially scary things in a maybe accessible way. I'm not sure what psychologists would say today. 
about any of this? I just wonder if it was a way for children to somehow make sense of a world around them where they had very little power, but they they knew about leprosy. They knew about smallpox. I don't think I would have known anything about that as a six or seven or eight year old. Well, person. and you have to think of what does it mean to know about that? Like imagining, imagining a French paper doll's skin peeling off as, you know, oh, pretending they're, they have leprosy. I mean, that could come from an understanding of a Bible story. It doesn't necessarily come from everyday life. A lot of these stories, you know, have different um, cultural ways they appear in cultural texts. Like they might appear in periodicals. It might appear in Sunday school readings. So it's not as if a child pretending those things necessarily had direct experience with, you know, far more likely to be thinking about something like measles in a late 19, in a 19th century context, but they could still know about those concepts and know about what those things might mean. I think thinking about this in terms of perhaps giving a child control over some of those rituals, I think that certainly could be part of it. It's also interesting to just sort of imagine that perhaps some of these rituals were just more part of daily life, that you know, thinking about a funeral is not something that necessarily happens in a funeral home separate from your family parlor, but something that happens within a domestic setting that is something you might see women around you doing or being responsible for or know people who are responsible for those kinds of um, hosting experiences. Like children are participating in that more so than they certainly do today. I'm seeing this around me. You know, I've heard it in stories. I have this object. And if I'm treating this object as a living thing that I have a connection with, then death would be the next, would be in the natural progression of things. It's inviting children to continue play, even if a doll might not necessarily be perfect. And it's also asking us to imagine that children had different cultural experiences in other times, right? One One of the things that I think is is a trap that 21st century um, people fall into sometimes is imagining that childhood was something that was just the same in other periods or other moments, or that people experienced the world in similar ways. And while some things certainly remain the same, you know, like it's a myth to think that parents didn't like love their children because children, you know, died more regularly in the, you know, 17th or 18th centuries. Like, of course, parents love their children. But people had different experiences of death. People had different experiences through time of these kinds of ideas. And so perhaps it was a social ritual that, you know, wasn't necessarily something that felt taboo. My name is Anders Zanichkowski. I am the owner and weaver at Burial Blankets in Chicago. I make handwoven shrouds for green burial that are meant for enjoyment and reflection during life. I had a very, very powerful, profound experience years ago when I visited the British Museum. And I wandered into the ancient Egyptian wing and was immediately horrified and sort of dumbstruck by the funeral art that surrounded me. I was acutely aware of two things at the same time, that this was very, very real. These 
statues of these gods who had been placed to watch over the dead like they felt spiritually very powerful and very real and the fact that i was there a white person from america in england in the 21st century even knowing that they existed let alone being able to walk in and look at them on display having been looted stolen and and then put in this like jewel box of the british empire was very deeply deeply disturbing to me um and this was a very powerful experience for me because it was the first time i saw art that had been made for the dead art that was not even meant to be seen by living eyes and really incredible art and i was very very hungry for burial art and funeral art that would be powerful in that way for me to make and for me to participate in something that was of my own culture of my own tradition for my own dead that would not loot or steal from other cultures let alone actual tombs <laughs> the way that the the British Empire did um and the way plenty of museums in the US have done and all of that I notice on your website and on your your presence online, you call them burial blankets when the common term I've heard is burial shrouds. Is that an intentional choice? Why differentiate between shrouds and blankets? Absolutely. Burial blankets are shrouds designed for green burial. They're also designed for a lifetime of enjoyment and reflection. So this is a piece of handwoven cloth that is going to wrap you up, put you in the ground, lay you to rest or cover your body or your casket. Um, and in the meantime, they are also equally fully designed to live a life with you as a blanket, as a bedspread, as a shawl, as a altar cloth, as a wall hanging. Um, and so, yeah, it is, it, it is a, it's a burial blanket. And I, I also like the way that that word blanket lets us think about the act of shrouding and lets us imagine ourselves being shrouded and lets us contemplate our own mortality with some warmth and some comfort and some coziness if you will yeah that's interesting so this is an art form that literally spans from life through death you know like like you mentioned you'll be wrapped up in this when you when you go to rest and i think that's an interesting connection too between you know the blanket aspect and like laying people to rest there's that whole concept of you know death as as rest i don't know i just i find the connection there really interesting yeah, I love that idea of death as rest, that that it's a blanket in life and it's also a blanket at, at burial. And you know, people have used blankets from the home to shroud and wrap and bury the dead for forever. <laughs> um, someone, you know, wrapping grandma in one of her quilts, for example. So I guess as part of your goal with this art to make death less of a of a foreign object, you know. The the funeral industry, for lack of a better term, has created so many barriers between us and the end of life. Is your goal to sort of sort of close that gap and bring this into sort of what we would consider the natural cycle of, you know, life and death? It's interesting to think about my personal goal within a much larger um, movement, if you will, of green burial and natural burial. I think my goal as an artist is 
to really put my skills and my craftsmanship to work within this field of what people might call holistic death care or natural death care or green death care. And I also want to, I want to say when we talk about, yes, funeral industry, I think is a really great term to use um, because the barriers that you're talking about where it is a physical and visual and tactile barrier where someone else is preparing the body, preparing your loved one, um, and you're sort of removed to the front of the funeral parlor where the funeral home staff are doing everything, you know, behind the scenes, sort of those sorts of barriers. You know, that industry is a money-making industry, and I think it's appropriate to talk about it that way. I know I just used the term like movement about green burial, but I think a really important thing to remember about so-called green burial, where the body is put into the ground, maybe three feet deep, intended to be fully biodegradable in the materials we're, we're wrapped in and then become part of the earth again. We should maybe just call that burial because that's how people have buried their dead for tens of thousands of years. Um, and so, and there are still, I mean, you know, Islam, for example, is a religion that has practiced green burial forever um, and still practices green burial to this day. And so, you know, this idea of it being a, a movement, I think the movement part of it and my role in it as a, um, as someone, you know, joining this work is, is just a more um, conscious awareness across the U.S. And, and other countries and cultures that we want to return to something we've always done rather than thinking about a movement as something we're creating that's new because green burial is, of course, ancient. Um, and so, yeah, so my, my goal with burial blankets is to, again, use my skills, use my craftsmanship as an artist to give someone something that is very, very beautiful, something that is very meaningful. I think a lot about how artists are charged with giving meaning in the world, making meaning out of the world, making sense out of the sensible world. Um, so I give someone something that is very beautiful, very tactile, very wonderful and luxurious to hold and to feel. Um, and that that memento mori is much more um, sensual than a skull on the wall, for example. Have you begun work or have you completed your own burial blanket yet? Yes and no. <laughs> I, have, um, I have woven a shroud for a performance that I did. And if I die tomorrow, that will be the shroud to use. Um, it is also not a shroud that I wove intending for it to be my burial shroud. Um, and so I'm giving myself a little bit of time now that I'm, at, I'm a full-time professional shroud weaver to design my own shroud. You've been listening to Refrangible, a production for the Center for Design and Material Culture at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And a special thanks to our guests for this episode, Hallie Zillman, Dr. Sarah Ann Carter, and Anders Zanischkowski. If you haven't already, be sure to hit subscribe and leave a review. You can also give us a shout out on social media and let us know what you think about the show. Or if you have any thoughts or recommendations for future episodes, just tweet at UW underscore CDMC. And just a quick programming note before we go. We're going to take the next few weeks off to reconsider our direction in light of recent events. In our next episodes, we'll be talking about objects of home, 
but it felt a bit tone deaf to talk about home when so many people have lost theirs. However, as long as you're subscribed, you'll be the first to know when we get back on our regular publishing schedule. Until then, I'm Jonah Chester. And I'm your host, Jennifer Fields, and we'll see you soonish. ish